0: This is The Urban Political.
1: The podcast on urban theory, research and activism.
2: Okay, thank you for joining us today in our second part of the episode on mobilization and advocacy in contexts of massive urbanization. My name is Markus Kipp and I'm sitting next to my colleague Ross Beveridge. Um, And today we will join the discussion of our guests, in the background, um, in our last episode, we heard about reflections on Delhi, Karachi, Lagos, and Manila. And today, we have another uh, set of four speakers and our moderator Abdul Malik Simon. And I think we're going to hear uh, from cities or uh, from reflections on cities in Cairo, Jakarta, Nairobi, and Rio de Janeiro. Um, so we're very happy to have another exciting, uh, set of guests, um, present with us. And I would like to start asking you to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, beginning with you, Abdul Malik. Uh,
0: thank you, Marcus, um, I'm Abdul Malik uh, Simone. I'm a senior professorial fellow at the Urban Institute at the University of Sheffield. Thanks.
3: Okay, thank you, Marcus. So uh, I'm Deandre Rawati, currently based in Jakarta. I'm a PhD student at Geography Department, University of California, Los Angeles, and currently doing my field work in Jakarta since January.
1: Hi, I'm Mariana Cavalcanti, and I'm, a, I'm an urban anthropologist based at the Institute for Social and Political Studies at the State University of Rio de Janeiro. Hi,
4: I am Mu'min Al-Hosseini. I am based in Cairo. I teach at the American University in, in Cairo. I'm an urbanist and uh, an architect with a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. I'm so happy to join you.
0: Thank you.
5: Hello, my name is uh, Steve oumar I am based in Nairobi, Kenya, I'm an anthropologist by training and practice, and I teach at uh, Kenyatta University here in Nairobi. I'm glad to be here, thank you. Okay, thank you everyone, um, now we're going to hand over to
3: Abdul Malik who's going to, to moderate the, the session, the podcast.
0: Uh, thank you Ross. Um, Today, we have a second series of uh, reflections from uh, members of uh, the uh, School on on Massive Urbanization. Uh, This is one of several schools that was initiated by the Urban Institute at the University of Sheffield um, uh, a number of months ago, to form uh, several different collectives uh, that focus on specific thematics that are pressing in today's consideration of of urbanization. Um, School uh, in in the sense of of colleagues and friends coming together uh, collectively to support each other's thinking, to reflect, to probe, to subvert, to challenge, provoke, uh, to try to together make a mark on the way in which uh, we think about uh, important aspects of the urban today. And this particular collective um, is Directed toward engaging really massive urban regions, uh, so all uh, all eleven of us are uh, our work and our residents are is basically in in very very large complicated um, urban regions with the with the with the emphasis that there is something about the way in which these urban regions continue to embody a complexity of of processes, which is not just concerning their ecological or economic or spectral footprints, uh, not just in terms of the notion of, of volume uh, of, of scale uh, at which urbanization is taking place, um, but also the way in which different logics and different kinds of actors and different processes are intersecting in, in very heterogene, heterogeneous and often difficult to track ways uh, that produce this kind of extensive Spatialization of, of of urban life, and so we've come together to think about the, these kinds of processes and try to have something useful to to say about them. So I'd like to to begin our our, our discussion today um, with. What what, the, what my, my colleagues, my friends, what, what is it that you see in your own experiences that oftentimes seems to go beyond our ability, the, the ability of, of, of our analytical tools, our ways of grasping things? What is, it that, what's, what is it that exceeds that? What is it that goes beyond that, that is in some ways hard to get? Um, and then given that, what is it that you are clear about? What is, what is it that you are fairly confident and certain about in terms of trying to understand what, what is going on? So I'd like to begin with, with, with and, um, you know, you've worked for so long for, for different activist groups, um, different social movements uh, within Jakarta and Indonesia. Uh, and so over the years, particularly from the, from the grassroots, you, you have this, this really depth of experience in a region which is now apparently the largest urban region in the world. So now we're talking about 33, 34, 35 million, million people. In a region which is, in some sense, all over the place. So, from your perspective, what what are the what are the things about this region that remain elusive? But at the same time, what is it that you, in some sense, do feel confident that you do know in terms of what's going on? So, Dion, please, the floor is yours.
3: Okay, thank you, Malik, for the uh, invitation and the provocation, the questions about how we, as the scholars but also activists, perceive our city and how the ongoing processes have has been taking place in cities like Jakarta, uh, uh, for example. So, as many other mega-, mega cities in the global south, I think Jakarta has been and continue to intensify its massiveness, and for me, that's another. Uh, examples of how this ongoing process is uh, is interested to, to 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 paying attention to. For example, in Jakarta, the reclamations of space, which I will call, has been persistent through both horizontal expansion and with through verti- uh, vertical expansions, and it has been uh, implemented in the past decades through the use of the floor area ratio policies. And yet, at the same time, the horizontal development is sustained through many projects in Jakarta and many different cities in Indonesia, including, for example, the uh, Jakarta Coastal Reclamation Project who has uh, inside many debates about whether, whether this is a good project for Jakarta and the lately is the new appointed Indonesian capital city in Kalimantan, Borneo. And also at the same time, the expansions to the periphery which also interestingly still introducing the higher rise living such as uh, one of the famous projects called Makarta Projects. It is a project uh, in 500 hectares of land uh, in jakarta's periphery and aim to build 250,000 apartment units so what i've seen is that this like a very uh 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 aggressive process, right? Both try to expand both horizontally and vertically. And it happens both in the city center and in the, in the periphery area. And then for the city center, the apartment buildings has been evicted, the Kampong residents. And in the periphery, the co gated developments has been transformed many fields and also evicted the villagers. So uh, what I've seen is that these processes of reclamation of spaces has Become one of the main contributors to the spatial and social segregation in Jakarta, which has widened the gap between the poor and the rich and the middle class in between, and the aspirations to be the world-class city has marginalized the urban poor, and there has been uh, there has been cornered. Uh, as the scapegoats and perceived as the cause of Jakarta's eco-social problems, including flood, slums, you name it. So all the problems that has been experienced by Jakarta as the capital city has been blamed to the urban poor. And this has caused that or uh, reflect in the the lack of the confidence of the urban poor in the city that they no longer believe that they are part of the cities, that they have the right to the cities. And many of them then join the collective, which embodied in many Islamic groups or majlis, what we call. So with, with this religious collective, the urban poor then dares to navigate the city. They have the confidence to storm the main streets wearing the same white fabrics as their silt, as their identity. And for me, this is Uh, I perceive that it is the only time or or opportunity for them to feel that uh, finally they belong in Jakarta. And recently, as you've mentioned earlier in our discussions, that we have just, uh, the the government and the parliament just has just issued this new law called uh, job creation law, which has added another dynamic to the landscape. So through the law, uh, big developers will justify their ongoing approach to land grabbing and now they even have the legal support and what I I perceive is as politician the governor will juggle always right between these powers between big developers who own the money and will support him in the next election and also religious leaders who have the mass who have the supporters and for me that Creates another group of urban dwellers who are left behind to navigate between these these players. That's 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 all Malik.
0: Um, that's quite a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, um, play, thanks, 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 Dion. I mean, this this rhythm of of up up and down um, in terms of spatial reclamation is really particularly interesting, and be, and this rhythm of up and down leaves as you say, um, widening gaps. Um, Gaps in our understanding, gaps through which the poor increasingly fall through, uh, gaps of which there can be some kind of different kinds of maneuvering, but the way in which these gaps are sometimes carpeted by, as you say, this kind of surface of white of the adornment of particular kinds of religious uh, identities and discourses that create a kind of sense of of collective action in in response uh, to these uncertain rhythms of of up and and down. Um, Mariana uh, from from Rio, speaking of rhythms, I mean, Rio is the city we all love in terms of its rhythms, Um, this kind of place of both conviviality but really intense racialization. Um, In the past years, Rio has seen remarkable kinds of contestations, uh, tense fractures. Um, So what is it, what has your experience been in terms of trying to to make sense of these things? What things elude your understandings and, and what things are you pretty much confident about, Mariana?
1: As an urban anthropologist, I'd say that one of the major analytical challenges we face is the fact that we're all natives in this predominantly urban world. The majority of the world lives in cities in which everyday life unfolds through spaces and temporalities that are very distant from normative ideas of city life as prescribed by the concepts of city planning. And yet these normative ideas of urban theory inform ideas and projects of everyday city life in the very cities and sites that challenge their universality. So normative ideas of planning attain a particular type of reality as they make up the language through which urban life and form are thought, built, and constituted as future projects. Incorporating this problem into urban theory means moving away from an anthropology of the city to an anthropology of city making, or from an urban anthropology to an anthropology of urbanism, or maybe to be more precise, an ethnography of the many urbanisms that make up daily life in cities. This shift helps us to recast normative ideas of city making as one among, among many building blocks of native utterances about cities and urban futures. I've been doing fieldwork in Rio since late 1997, Much of it, if not most of it, has been focused on my academic research. But parts of it were commissioned by the World Bank. Some of it was funded by the Brazilian state as the state or through its research funding agencies, Um, some American funding, and some of it I've just done on my own on a volunteer basis for local NGOs and community groups. So it's really all very mixed up. I'm in the field as researcher, academic, activist, and or evaluator of public policy, There's no purity to my research or to my position in the field. Over these decades, I've reached out to interlocutors who also shift positions. Community leaders become community agents, young community journalists become activists, some occasionally get elected to the city council or state legislature. And many of us ended up involved in the development or the evaluation of public policy and programs at some point. All of this is missed when we use terms like the state, the community and its leaders, and much of the vocabulary that we're used to. These terms tend to fix these positions and leave out the fact that we're all moving within this space, occupying different places over time. What I see in urban politics in real is this constant shift in political and institutional configurations, but the permanence of the same people in this enlarged field of local players that build their own networks through the, throughout the metropolitan city. A significant portion of new actors in this field of urban politics are young university graduates from peripheral backgrounds. Many of them are the first in their families to finish high school. Most of them are the first to get university degrees. And some of them have moved on to graduate school. So now we meet there too. They're involved in my own institutional space just as I've been involved in theirs for a very long time. Together and over time, these people, groups, collectives and initiatives have been mapping the city particularly by producing geo-referenced data that is made public. So we have groups, collectives and institutions that provide numbers on shootouts, on urban infrastructure provision, on police operations and the deaths they, calls, they cause. They count covid cases, they do fact-checking and use this data to produce new narratives about the city and its problems. In other words, there's this collective dis- dispersed network of people producing maps that are also producing truths about urban life in different territories of the city, scientific truths that can help strengthen the force and deepen the reach of the language of rights. This qualitative reading of quantitative data and the appropriation of the process of producing numbers and public data by peripheral subjects is what I see as new and promising in Rio de Janeiro in particular, but also in other resident cities.
0: Thank you, Mariana. Yeah, no, it's very—it's uh, a very important point you make about the the processes of, of of city making and and what we know about it and new kinds of experiments in epistemology. You know, as the as the city is also made now, uh, a cadre of of different actors that are, as you say, first-time university graduates who now have a different kind of positionality through which to to observe what's going on. And and so it's very important to to consider the ways in which knowledge is generated through new forms of of practice, uh, particularly on the part of those that have attempted to circumvent their prior historical marginalization. Um, so thank you for these observations. Um, Moment, I mean, talking about city city making um, in in the the massiveness of Cairo, where much of the city has always been made by the residents themselves. It seems that this kind of making is attempt is being circumvented by the kinds of spectacular fantasies of remaking Cairo uh, on, on the part of, of the state and its, and its collaborators. Um, so I'm wondering what observations you you have about, you know, the process of understanding what's taking place in Cairo, uh, what's, what seems to be elusive and what other things seem to be resoundingly clear. So Momin, you have the floor, please.
4: Thank you, Malik. Um, I'm so excited to join the group and to discuss this important prompt and provocation, how we conceive of the city, how we conceive its making. And over a year, over 40 years of growth and expanded urbanization in Cairo, throughout reintroducing and redefining the desert edge, How can we understand it? How we can understand the fluid geography of pushing and occupying it and redefining it through inhabitation. I think I use the term of the dream. The dream of the state is to urbanize. The dream of developers is to accumulate wealth. The dream of the affluent is to enjoy these spectacular urbanisms. The dream of middle-class residents is to dwell in ways different than those imposed by the state and the developers. It's about the ability to sneak in and try to make sense of what is already there. The ultimate social practice of dream is unreal, and and accounted, and the flower and the accountability of them are actually flourish on the friction between reality and imaginary of a city becoming, in hope for the benefit of the doubt. So in that regard, this notion of mass urbanization becomes the urbanism of the infinite trials and relentless attempts. It is the urbanism of the endless, the unattainable, the one that you do not to not to get exhausted from it is not necessarily popular in the sense of being the favorite of people state is reproducing huge amounts of in the in the 1980s were producing ghost cities that then in the 1990s were taken over by real estate developers creating gated communities that for many for many years they were like uninhabited and then in the 2000s, they were reproduced again by our Gulf capital trying to escape the 9 11 moments where, when the 9 11 terrorist attack happened and being blocked from investing in the global north, they moved, they shifted to cities like Cairo and Beirut to, with capital influx, to reimagine and repurpose the desert. And then, during the two thousand and eight with social unrests, the state decided to relocate people from the inner city to one of the gated community in a kind of a concession with a real estate developer having it half empty so it is it is this notion where for the first time you find uh, a gated community divided between the affluent and the people who are being relocated and then after 2011 the project of the real estate developers have been moved to the state to dream to build a new capital city but however in this notion of dreaming and reproducing there is a very important thing that even The the, the social class that constitute these kind of landscapes are being changed and transformed. People who have been living in the desert in the 1980s are finding new jobs in the gated communities. They are finding markets. They are creating new opportunities. So we we are reaching to a point that we are we are developing spatial mutations. And this is an important thing to rethink about these mass organizations that they are about the politics of the maybe. They are the politics that maybe uh, you outplay the state, maybe you outplay the policy makers, the contractors and developers. It becomes the architecture of maybe in science, technical terms, it is, it, is, it is unplanned that these kind of extended urbanizations, like we define them for a particular social class or for particular imaginary, are being transformed on the ground. However, they become, it is a trial of maybe. People are looming around at the edges of them. It, maybe it happens this time to be able to infiltrate it is the probability of pushing the limits. People keep doing what they have to do in order to find ways of inhabitation and re- restructuring the desert. So in that regard, especially after 2011, with this kind of outbreak and having witnessed it on the front, from the front lines, dreams are subconscious fragments of the mind articulated as a hide away from reality. They operate in the fading truth and escape from facts, but still use some factual pieces to reconstruct a possibility that is a simulacrum resembles a copy of something, but not actually. The copy never exists. They make out this dream, the dream of being in Cairo, the dream of being inhabiting the desert. It's embedded in the city. But can we, can it be this embedded when things get worse? Worse, I think it's, it's this notion of um, storytelling, and I'm here going to use the term um, uh, of Caroline Quijado, we, who we miss today, um, the, 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 the power of the storytelling that people begin to try and try that maybe the, the, the revolution is not over. Maybe it is about the frictions of the everyday. Maybe it is about getting a chance to inhabit. For the first time, we find that people are contesting the real estate developers together with retired military generals who are inhabiting these gated communities for self, for private governance. There so are town halls inside gated communities. So there are elections and it becomes a struggle and very heated inside gated communities with youth who have witnessed the revolution or were young back then to participate in 2011. However, they have seen it on on the social media. So now they are young graduates taking part in smaller enclaves with elections contesting the situation because simply they cannot really go outside the gates because then they will be arrested. However, these kind of possibilities, these kind of frictions that are reproducing the urban or reproducing the extended urbanization, but also reproducing the urban political. How can we conceive of the public sphere when the public is not even allowed outside? So can we find within the fragments a possibility for an alternative imaginary. They've built it as the extended urbanization and the mass urbanisms as a spectacular landscape in an orientalist way. However, it is completely subverted, completely retransformed, and it becomes this politics of maybe that keeps one dreaming and trying.
0: Thank you, Mohamed. Yeah, I mean, when when one would sort of ask the question, "What what time is it?" You know, it used to be one could respond to it. Well, it's it's nation time. Um, nation time meaning some sense of coherence, some kind of framework that ties everything together. But what you're saying is is that. Uh, the dream as a story is not a kind of coherent narrative. I mean, dreams skip around, they they take all kinds of circuitous routes and jumps. And so it's never a kind of clear story. And especially when you have multiple dreams and multiple fragmentary narratives you know, they're gonna come together in all different kinds of of ways. As you say, in terms of spatial mutations, the notion of maybe this looks like something, maybe it doesn't, maybe this will work and and maybe not. Um, But how to dwell in those fragments that don't seem to have a kind of overarching story, don't have the kind of coherence that a sense of nation time would otherwise otherwise provide um, and, the, and how then in, 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 in fundamental ways, uh, an urban politics has to operate within the interstices of all of those fragments, um, take what kind of space it can and not necessarily see itself as with clear lines of connection to other spaces or other stories in, in, in the city. So these are very, really, really, really rich uh, re- re- reflections um, on the notions of, of the way in which dreams inform uh, the politics of, of, of spatial production. Um, Steve, uh, I mean, you, Nairobi was sort of part of a kind of settler colonial dream, uh, where uh, that dream attempted to sort of extract as much as it could from wherever, it, where, where it found itself. Um, but increasingly the, 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 the function of Nairobi doesn't seem to act either according to a kind of overall dream. It seems to display itself as a place where all kinds of uh, makeshift, experiments can happen. Nairobi increasingly prides itself on its ability to uh, do all kinds of things with tech, uh, all kinds of things with social media uh, as a way of, of, of shaping the city. But it also has to deal with the sort of residual dreams of all of those who came to Nairobi, hoping for a viable place to live, but finding themselves over generations uh, caught within particular kinds of diminished spaces. So how 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 is your, what has been your 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 experience in trying to come to, to grips, both as a kind of academic researcher, and as you also say, a kind of human rights activist? Steve?
5: Thank you very much, Malik, and uh, it's a pleasure to be in uh, this panel, and indeed your framing of Nairobi, give, it's it's, 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 a useful analysis of what it is. What I've encountered uh, in recent times are um, what I want to call multiple forms of uh, what you are referring to as massiveness here. Massiveness in terms of um, there has been um, an upsurge in the number of people who come to Nairobi by the day, and a decline of the number of people who stay in Nairobi at night. So, by the day, we have up to 6 million people. By night, we have sometimes up to 2.5 million, or, at optimum, 3 million. During um, annual holiday breaks, like Easter, and Christmas, and New Year, there is a massive movement outside Nairobi. And that uh, kind of a demographic, demographic pattern gives an indication on how people see Nairobi, how people produce Nairobi, how people relate to Nairobi. So, largely, people still largely relate to Nairobi as this transient space, as a squatting space, as a place where you go for fairly economic and political function, uh, for young people, for academic function, and sometimes social function. But this non-permanent nature, which has created categories of home and house. So Nairobi is not home. Nairobi is where a house is. And home remains some other place where one has sort of a cultural and um, lineage relationship. And, and that very framing of how people relate to Nairobi has produced a particular kind of Nairobi, which is um, one, one that over the last two decades have largely been neglected by the government in terms of um, infrastructure investment and the uplift of basic um, uh, survival um, uh, link, links like sewer line, water, drainage. So Nairobi was literally collapsing. Uh, but five years ago, there's been a return to Nairobi. The return to Nairobi by big international funders, the World Bank, Africa Development Bank, and Chinese bank, and with this return this massive production of um, physical infrastructure. Two important ones are the standard gauge railway, which links Nairobi and the port city of Mombasa, a colonial reproduction, another one is a, a large number of roads. but this massive uh, infrastructural investment leaves side by side by never-ending experiments. The um, years of neglect of Nairobi and the current focus on uh, physical infrastructure does not allow people to get access to dignifying housing, water, transport system relations. So people produce all this. So Nairobi is a home of multiple experimentations which are themselves being produced also in a massive form. So this then pushes us to think about this massive urbanization um, as both um, some endogenous energy that people produce as a way of relating to the urban and producing the urban, as well as some sort of exogenous intervention that is done by the the national and global capitalist uh, finances and relations. But the second issue about Nairobi is the role of UN UN habitat. is domiciled in Nairobi. And so UN Habitat has had a big internal crisis that it is in Nairobi, yet Nairobi has some of the largest low-income settlements that are unplanned. So the UN Habitat has struggled over the years to get a language that can enable it to explain what is Nairobi, what it is doing in Nairobi, and how its presence in Nairobi um, contributes to its mandate. And in that struggle, there's been huge um, cocktail of weddings. For example, do you call the low-income areas slums? Do you call them unplanned areas? Do you call them squatters? And what is the political, social and legal meaning of each of those categories? And ultimately, which is my third um, framing of that question, is uh, that has produced uh, the paradox of upgrading. And Nairobi is now regarded as a city in perpetual upgrading. And upgrading is a paradox because it raises the question, upgrading towards what? Upgrading for who? Who needs upgrading? And like you said, the upgrading largely is, a, is an attempt to move Nairobi back to the colonial functional logic, where you balkanize the city in terms of low income and high and high income to replace the initial colonial racial boundaries, where you balkanize the city. In terms of the inner core and the periphery, where the periphery is unserved, but yet it is the um, reservatory of uh, excess um, or rather um, uh, spine labor for the city. And upgrading ultimately seems to have led into depleting the experiment. Upgrading seems to be leading into objectification of social functions that people had produced as part of the never ending experiment. Upgrading seems to be bringing uh, an idea of rationality that is not in resonance with the located rationalities that have been generated over time. So this competition of um, scale and logics is what constitutes the imagery of Nairobi in the context of of, of, of massive urbanization.
0: Well, thank you, Steve, for these reflections yeah I mean, it, you really point to, I mean, how do we understand things and and how we understand things depends a lot on on what we call things. Um, and so there's a kind of um, there's not only a material infrastructure as as you point out, but there's a particular kind of linguistic and conceptual infrastructure that takes that heterogeneity of energy, which you refer to. And, and structures it in, in particular kinds of ways, um, which in some ways raises the question, well, what is that energy allowed to produce? What is it enabled to produce? What kinds of dispositions? What kinds of, of, of outcomes? And you're right. I mean, the, the sort of paradox of upgrade, perpetual upgrading is in some ways a kind of formatting the constant formatting of that very, very energy, in in a way that that somehow limits what that kind of heterogeneity is able to is able to do. Um, so, thanks very much, Steve, for for, for these reflections. Um, in the, in the in this, in this sort of second round now of our of our our conversation. I'd, I'd like to perhaps focus on the, the the considerations of your of your respective practices. Um, you talked about sort of epistemological concerns, how how you how you know what's taking place, some of the some of the, the critical issues, which you all have been involved in. Designing and participating in in particular kinds of interventions through which you tr- attempt to respond to these kinds of conditions. So I'd like to ask some questions about, about these. I mean, Dion, for 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 so many years, you have been involved um, with uh collectives, organizations, movements of uh, some of the the low income residents of of the Northern part of of Jakarta primarily. Um, Places that have been increasingly vulnerable to eviction, vulnerable to uh, a range of climatic conditions, vulnerable to new kinds of um, infrastructures that attempt to address the concerns that, you know, the the region of Jakarta may simply disappear because of of climatic climatic uh, factors, flooding, um, uh, the sea sea rise levels. Um, And you've been working for, for many years in terms of pushing back of trying to enable people to stay in place to remake their lives in ways that are viable in, in addressing these kinds of, of new considerations but it in in some ways these these areas become almost iconic or emblematic you know they become um Symbolic sites of 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 struggle, uh, which is important, um, but they are they are circumscribed in terms of their of of how much they do represent the, the, the entire, entire entire region. Um, so I'm just wondering how how in your in your in your work uh, over over the years. How do you keep in mind somehow to try to, to win these kinds of limited victories, uh, to provide some kind of political impetus to put the situations of some of the poorest residents on the map, knowing full well that these areas of North Jakarta may not even exist in the future are um, certainly not, are not representative of the vast range of different low-income communities throughout the region. How do you, how in your practice, do you sort of think about this 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 kind of this kind of work?
3: Okay. Uh, thank you, Malik. So, throughout my works with the, the urban poor who lives in the northern part of Jakarta, I think I. I would I would like to borrow what Mormon has. Uh, to just ask the 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 concept of politics of maybe the the idea of that each of these urban actors has their dreams and how throughout this process there has been these contestations over the space in order to realizing their dreams. So as Mormon has already said that the government, I mean the, the the government or the state have their own ideas or dreams and. As Jakarta is one of the post colonial cities it, it always has it has been dictated by the the global narrative of what is modern cities and then for the developers for example just like as moment also already said how they can using these opportunities to accumulate the the, the, the capitals how to even using the the interests of the poor and to appropriate their needs and claim that they 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 will provide and help the governments to to help them. So it's it's always these consultations. And where the urban poor uh uh standing in this uh landscape is I think the the the, the, the power of the dreams uh has been become the the major uh roles on how they somehow just like what you said earlier how can you still quote unquote pretending that everything will will be will be realized in the future, that what you've dreamed about Jakarta will be realized, what how you idealize kampungs uh, still remain or intact in northern part of Jakarta. I think that what I've been learned with, with the people itself, how to maintain dreams and how to keep persistent. And I think throughout the, the past 20 years that there have been trying to uh implementing different strategies to fight for their dreams to to keep believing that someday the policy might might changing someday we might find new ways while at the same time you keep trying to survive right trying to to be be kind or to try to be nice bridge, uh, creating new relationship new networks with different stakeholders in the cities uh, and then what I've seen in the last probably five years is how they uh, also experimenting, trying to uh, d- uh, apply different tactics, try to, uh, you know, just like what, when like I'm a student, so each time I manage to complete an assignment, I feel like uh, I have increased in terms of my confidence. And I think that's what also helps. That urban poor uh, uh, experiencing for the past few years, uh, in each of the strategies that have been uh, implementing in fighting for their interests, I think uh, they gain more confidence and they they have more beliefs. We probably have more dreams, a variety of dreams, and trying to to implement to uh, realizing that. And in the five in the last three years, they've been trying, oh no, in the last five, 10 years, they've been trying to implement what we call a political contract when they try to basically uh, collide or not collide, but like really had a contractual with the with the candidate, with the, the governor or the mayor, and then some some, and exchange of, of votes. And what happens afterward is what I've seen for the past year here in Jakarta is that they've been able to actually trying to persuade the governor, for example, how to change policies uh, into their benefits, to to change policies for the urban poor uh, interests. And I think these experimenting strategies has been so far. Uh, uh co- contributing to the the improvement of life of the urban poor in Jakarta despite the fact that all the pressure still keep coming there are so many uh, development plan has been designed in northern part of Jakarta there are so many actors have been also persuading and also influencing the governor and this is what interesting the the contestations between these actors and how the women poor uh at the different level due to this political contract ha- has been able to to keep pushing you know, pushing the boundaries and then somehow improve their confidence and for me I am also taking I am also uh, gaining lesson from this process because working with them for the past 15 years I'm Somehow I felt less confidence whether we can actually win someday. But by by working with them in the past few months, I've learned that you have to accept your dream. You have to fight for your dream. You have to dream bigger even, bigger than the developers, bigger than the state so that you can someday win the battles. Yeah, Malik.
0: Um, thank you Dion uh, particularly for your ongoing commitment and and, and convictions uh, around uh, an area of Jakarta and, and groups of, of people and situations which you've really dedicated your energies for such a long period of time and and particularly interesting is how the how the poor in Jakarta attempt to go from simply being a vote bank to to uh, configuring themselves as, as their own political force uh, in order to materialize some of the imaginations they have about their right and and role with it within, within the city. Um, Mariana you you've you well known for the your all your inventive work, in attempting to pursue research practices that attempt to tie together a lot of the very disparate spaces of of Rio, Um, a region which is oftentimes characterized uh, even morphologically, socially, politically, uh, by very fragmented, singular kinds of of worlds. And I was just wondering your reflections on the way in which your research practice in trying to find ways in which different areas of Rio are related to each other could help contribute to prefiguring uh, a a different kind of politics, a different kind of political forcefulness uh, in, in Rio. So the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Malik. Um, I think I've learned in all these years that narratives matter. Framing the problem matters. So in the past 20 years, I've witnessed the dismantling of the myth of racial democracy in Brazil, because the narrative was debunked through this qualitative reading of quantitative data over time. And of course, through daily social struggles in every territory of the city. I mean, I went into all this because it was this type of newspaper headline that used to drive me crazy in my late teens and early 20s. And it used to go like, shootout in ex favela shantytown, right? Brings a panic to such and such a formal neighborhood. Of course, the favela was located within the neighborhood, but it seemed natural to the media and its readership that the panic of the formal neighborhood is the subject of the headline. This is really the tip of what sociologist Marcia Leitch called the metaphor of war. This idea that violence in the favelas and in the peripheries place the entire city at risk. Well, actually the majority, right? The favelas and the peripheries. But this idea that this larger part of the city was placed in something at risk. And it was repeated in the media exhaustively day after day. And it led to this widespread acceptance of police violence in the favelas, and the peripheries and to the indiscriminate killing of black favela youth. We have all learned with Foucault and Benedict Anderson that statistics, mapping and censuses are about the power of the state to control populations. But now Foucault is read by this recent generation of university graduates of peripheral origin in Rio. They have taken it upon themselves, the task of representing the city and the language of the state, and they're turning Foucault around. They're creating new narratives, producing new truths to dispute the state of things. And I think this is really a necessary step towards the construction of a more equal democratic city. I mean, I'm just concluding this 10-week graduate course called Contagious, city. T- Contagious Cities, that I've been teaching with my colleague, Eugenia Mota, and our idea was to get this historical perspective upon past and present epidemics and pandemics in cities in order to put together analytical tools to help our students look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Because of course, many of the theses and dissertations coming up in the next few years will have to deal with a pandemic. So at some point in the fifth week of the course, the readings became repetitive and our interpretations became more comprehensive. Because it seemed clear to us that epidemics were not really about epidemics, but about the production and reproduction of alterity and otherness in a word about racism. So the course turned out to be about racism and its production across times, spaces and diseases. From cholera epidemics to smallpox, from Ebola to to SARS and from 21st century Hong Kong to 19th century California or Rio, what we see is racism as a structuring force that produces landscapes, policies, violence, and all sorts of inequalities. And The production and implementation of public and urban policy depends on the production of numbers. And numbers can help us decontextualize racism if read in a historical perspective. These numbers are not just numbers, but symptoms of long-term historical processes in which racism is one of the key forces that shape them. So, I think that looking at racism and its structures in different settings might help us rework these narratives and shed new light on the daily life and possibilities of progressive politics in very different contexts.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the way the way the way in which. Racism is, is deployed as a, as a means of determining uh, who counts for what. Uh, the way in, in which it's used is, is a kind of predominant form of, of accounting, uh, accounting for what takes place, uh, valuing particular lives and existences and practices uh, over, over others um, and thus translating into a whole range of vulnerabilities. Uh, vulnerabilities to vulnerability to precarity to disease. Um, so yeah, thank you for, for your, your reflections here. Um, m- moment, um this this notion of 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 a, of accounting and 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 who counts for for what um I mean you 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 were known for a, a playing a, a really you know important role within the within the the revolutionary process of of in Egypt of of, of, of almost a, a decade ago um, and trying to formulate a different mode of of accounting. Um, the ways in which a kind of populace could count for for something other than what it was that they were uh, defined as. And in your recent work, you you look closely at ways in which um, particular kinds of built environments have been repurposed, again, to enable a different kind of count uh, a different capacity on the part of those that have been either displaced um uh, relocated or or simply opportunistically looking for a different kind of way of of living within 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 the within the region so perhaps you could you could talk a little bit more about your your trajectory i mean you've talked uh, you you spoken about this in your in your first set of comments to a certain extent but what holding holding the city to account or holding the state to account in 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 one version of your of your interventions a decade ago and now finding looking closely at the ways in which different kinds of urban residents attempt to make their existence count in a in a different way so if you could maybe speak to some of this, it would be great.
4: Thank you, Manique. This is quite a challenge. Okay. So um, um, i'd I'd start with connecting with um, with debunking the myths of democracy, as uh, Mariana stated, with this notion back almost a decade ago. With cele- the celebration of so called Arab Spring. And what did this teach us? Um, the idea is act- was actually to, uh, to make things exposed. It's about um, the collective action, the centralization of the space. But the centralization of the space on the square where everyone picked on it at the front pages of New York Times and so forth, was not actually the center, the center or the big tent at the middle or uh, just a matter of reclaiming public space. It is actually about feel, the feel of being a citizen. It is about feeling that we exist And it's a whole different, again, narrative, that it is not a matter of public space per se, but it is about being, being heard and exist. With the aftermath and what followed, the the state began to play the game of numbers and it's about the election elections, but it was not just that. It's not a matter of elections and numbers and and the calculations that follow. but it is about the being. Um, what is important as a lesson is that that we realize. That there is the, the the mobility of patients. Patients want to participate because it is very important to to exist and to be present and to survive. So, with that regard, one began to realize that actually it is about the resonance of maneuvering. The experimenting through the fragments and the broken promises it's through decentralization rather than centralization it is about exploring and and finding venues other than when when things get worse and you cannot really develop a political experiment in the streets or street activism, how can you take things beyond that. And, And it becomes a very important part where actually street vendors at every corner just to reclaim that the right to exist becomes an issue. To claim the right to exist and have a mode of statement even in pedagogy and this is where the pedagogy is becoming for me one way to develop experiments and awareness to lay the ground for what would be the intent of a revolution of thought that it becomes an action that is yet to come again so it's it's again it's this notion of dreaming of existing it's um you're realizing more and more that with the massive urbanization. I mean, yesterday, um, I'm talking 30th of November. Yesterday, they uh, there was an inauguration for a new lighting on I mean, like big event. The new lighting of the buildings around Tahrir Square, um, and the project cost. Uh, costed around uh, four million US dollars while we are extremely poor and we're going through COVID numbers and uh, like are increasing but it tells you that that the, the notion of accountability that that the way that the urban political of the way that the state the logics of it they are thinking that the fight is still in Tahrir and the centralization of it, like everyone else, and as long as it's empty, but however we are, the esthetization of of humanity. But it's not about that anymore to people, to citizens. It is about claiming life and existence. And I think it is through the every corners. It is through the that we're having kahwa, uh, like coffee shops at some kind of gated communities. We having, we're having some kind of quick gains, small gains. Small gains are accumulating to something for people. Um, and it's again, it's, 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 um, it's a matter of rethinking these kind of fragments that we work through them. Um, it's no more about also another thing. It's not more, no more about uh, just uh, the urban poor. Like, no, it is also about the middle class and it's, it's about the prof- professionals. And I think it's, it's, there are a lot of things happening. But again, it's because of the massiveness of the city and the population um, in a city like more than 25 million inhabitants. So they're not seen. However, with this small, these small things, and this is the beauty also of massiveness, is that you can still operate, and you operate through the margins, through the in-betweenness. But there are opportunities within these kind of large trials, within these kind of large focus on big capital cities, a new capital cities built uh, 70 kilometers away from the city center to relocate the, the 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 government and the parliament into the desert, so that it becomes a gated community of a capital city, so that then, when with the logic that if a revolution happened, okay, here we go, we're living for you, Tahrir Square. But it's not about that. It's it's uh, and and it's the the I think that within this kind of massiveness there are opportunities still within the cracks, within the fragments that are left unnoticed. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting and important question of holding the city to account and holding the state to account. And I think um, with time, time, I mean, you, you had a very uh, incredible lecture Malik uh, a couple weeks ago about forgetting time and and forgetting time for people it is forgetting the time of pain um, but also um, forgetting um, or or it's it's kind of also a marker a marker for the possibilities that it can, land and to think about existence in different ways other than the modernity of time space compression and speed so so maybe again it's it's the slowness it's the other way around it's the slowness of seeing things not working as planned as dreamt by the spectacular urbanisms that then people can claim and reproduce and have this kind of being, of becoming. So, yeah, that's that's my uh, little bit short slash long response.
0: Thanks, thanks, moment. Yeah, I mean, the, it, 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 your your comments really embody the way in in which the the urban is is not about a kind of linearity of of, of time. The time at all, um, and in some ways, the many urban middle classes were had, had been convinced in some ways that it 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 was that through a particular kind of patient, diligent, incremental sense of self improvement, that you know middle class attainment was was just around the corner, and and even for those that did attain it. Um, it didn't really correspond at all, very closely to what they had dreamt, dreamt really dreamt about. So uh, coming back again to these reflections of 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 time and 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 maybe and uh, the fragmentary natures of uh, of dreams. Uh, Steve, you for 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 many for a long time you ran uh, an important NGO in Nairobi, Pajoma Trust. Um, if you could might want to reflect upon your own activism in nairobi and and perhaps related to to Moman's notion of patience i mean what what is the patience of kibera i mean obviously people who have lived in in such um, dense and, and complicated and and challenging urban conditions have had to have their patience um, but we oftentimes assume we know what that patience is. Um, we know that they're maneuvering uh, all the time. Um, but how do you how do you connect your own patience as an activist with the patience exhibited by um, some of the most um, subjugated uh, communities within Nairobi? Steve.
5: Thank you very much, uh, Malik. Yes, indeed. Th- there is a way that uh, we have to try and explain the kind of longevity in terms of a period of um, staying and a period of uh, extended um, engagement between those who are in like Kibira and uh, the authorities of the urban areas. And there are three lessons that I see here. Uh, one, perhaps, just going back to Moment's concept of a patient, I think what I see tends to be a bit more on David Harvey's idea of uh, rebel cities. So what has happened is that the people of Kibera and many other people settlements in Nairobi, for example, have taken their time to study in great details how the city itself, although it purports to be designed within formal, rational, and bureaucratic framework, is extremely informal. For example, on the question of access to electricity, it became apparent quite soon to many residents of Kibira that most people who work with the Kenya Power and Lighting Company at lower artisan level, are residents of low-income areas. So during the day, they would spend their time fixing power from the main lines to the high-income urban areas. And then at night, they would come back to their people settlements, as you call them, and inhabit houses without electricity. And they just said, no, they won't do that anymore because the electricity um, uh, lines passed through the settlements, but they passed there going to the the high income areas. So with time, these very people who are employed by the Kenya Power and Lighting Company, which is a government corporation in charge of distribution of power, decided that they were going to use the same skills at night to connect power to the low income areas. That is something that moves, in my opinion, beyond patience. And it is sort of understanding the anatomy of power, understanding the anatomy of the economy, and then using it in a way that it's not, it's not just subverting, because they know that even the high income areas, there are many households that arrive on what is called illegal connections anyway. So they use those skills that ordinarily they should potentially be using to serve high-income areas, to provide the same services to their low-income areas, like Kibera. Another example is access to water. And what we realize on water as well, in Kibera in particular, is that for many years, and even now, Kibera doesn't have access to clean drinking water provided through formal government piping. but because those who work with the engineers in the Nairobi Water and Sewerage Company as artisans, a resident of Kibera, they have undertaken without anybody's instruction at their own behest and with their own collective protection to offer water connections in Kibera for their households, yard tops, and for toilets. Such that I do remember one incident, um, two years ago, before I left Pramoja Trust as executive director, where we went for an inspection of toilets that had been built by the government. And the toilets that had been ge- built by the government had no running water. But toilets that had been built by the local residents had running water. The minister for water asked me, Steve, how come government toilets have no water and the toilets built by the residents here have water? I told her, Madam Minister, water here, is organized by Kibera Water and Sewerage Company, and therefore it is not the jurisdiction of Nairobi Sewerage and Water Company. And the final point I wanted to make there is, then as a professional myself, and um, somebody also who believes in the rule of law, I, I got very divided because on the one side, you had um, people who had done what by law was really, what was called illegal connection, but by fact, uh, it was really a pragmatic decision they had to either connect water or suffer from waterborne diseases. They had to either connect power or use a paraffin and the carbon-based problems would imagine. So in that corridor, I think David Harvey becomes useful. And what I've done, what I did therefore for Pamoja Trust is to try and use that as the basis of negotiating what is commonly known as a co-production. Where co-production, was to start conversations between those who do innovations and actions that may look subversive and illegal but are pragmatic with the formal structures and in water for example we developed what we called delegated water management model where those who had initially taken over trunk lines and were connecting what were called legal connections were allowed to own those pipelines by the Nairobi Water and Sewerage Company and sell that water on behalf of Nairobi Water and Sewerage Company. So a co-production that sort of takes into account that pragmatic resistance and then incorporate it within a formal policy design.
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you, Steve, uh, for all of these uh concrete examples of, of what what you've tried to do and also reminding us basically that if we go through the formal connections we will remain substantially disconnected um, so um, you really have demonstrated that 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 point quite quite cogently um, now we, we for our, our final round of, of of quick reflections, um, given that we're 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 running out of time. Um, I'd just like to to pose uh, about what is it you think are the kinds of key political possibilities um, as 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 we go forward? So Dion, I mean, you know D- D- jakarta is my 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 second home, and I've always been struck the way in which jakartan's Um, I mean, of course, they demonstrate patience, but there's also a kind of um, incessant restlessness. You know, people always gathering somewhere, you know, 7-Eleven stores, you know, small eating places, um, no matter what people's occupations are, uh, even in a city which is really difficult to get around and takes a a lot of time. There's a sense of there's a sense of of humor, of irony, of joking, of always trying to figure new things out, of always trying to do something differently. So I'd like to ask, how do you think that one can capture that kind of that kind of uh, energy, heterogene- heterogeneous energy that Steve talks about? How do you think that can could be folded into a kind of an urban politics that somehow makes use of that kind of constant everyday imagining. Dion.
3: Okay, thank you, Malik. Uh, I think it. it I, I at first, at uh, first, I would like to say that that's a good. Uh, uh, what is it to catch what actually happens in Jakarta? Because for me, it's really difficult to explain to other people about why we are easily to making jokes or 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 laughing about ourselves, laughing about the the, the chaotic life in Jakarta and then how to pre- either actually or genuinely or pretending to enjoy the chaotic life in Jakarta. But I think you got it right, like how we always have this uh, sense of, of collectiveness, but also at the same time, uh, like playing around, uh, uh, trying new things, but also at the same time easily dictating by new things. Also, I think that what makes uh, us Minjakatan's or or any uh, any other uh, actors in, in in Jakarta to be very resilient, right? To be, I think the the logic of patience, the political of maybe it has has been is a product of these characters. Of the way we perceive ourselves, of the way we, 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 I mean, like we are actually screwed up, right? Like Jakarta is fucked up in terms of nobody knows where it will will be directed in the future. We have fragmentations uh, based due to the the elections in the national and in the local level. People are divided. Uh, there are so many uh, big actors. Uh, have uh, some to say in the government. Uh, Jakarta is expanded, uh, reclamation is happening de- despite the fact that many activists have tried to fight it, tried to uh, talk with the Korean governor, and he seems to support the movement, but also at the same time, s- uh, some projects still continue. So we, I mean, like urban dwellers in Jakarta or the uh, Jakarta's inhabitants, I don't think we know exactly what will happen in in, in 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 the future or in, in our surroundings. But one thing for sure is that the i the, the sense of first, I think everyone's is critical in terms of how to assess what happens around. Like you know exactly like what happens in, in our life, in our surroundings, in our city currently, but we don't know what you, you can you cannot have the exact uh, or the the insurance that what you think about Jakarta in the next one year will actually happen. I mean, like as I mentioned earlier, I've been working and then participating in the process with the with the grassroots movements and which trying to advocate their interests. And, and I've seen through, through throughout the process that despite that, this is a, a huge leap for them that basic that eventually they, they, they are in the same playing field with other actors and they have more to say to the governor and they have more uh promises that uh soon to be fulfilled by the governor. But still you don't have any guarantee you don't have any insurance that what you've telling yourself that we we will make it we finally succeed is actually happened so i've been witnessing the one of the project that has been the masterpiece that has been the the champion of the the current governor is not necessarily taking place as people expected expected in the beginning Despite the fact that they believe this, the governor will will fight for the interests, that we believe that this is the first time ever that we managed to push this far. But still, you don't know what will happen. And I think it's, it's common in, in any cities. But the the fact that all of this happens and we are fragmented, people are boxes into uh liberal and the other box are conservatives and in each box is attacking each other's and then the the middle class uh, liberal middle class making jokes about how these lower middle class who somehow follow these religious leaders as people that backwards blah 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 but the, the middle class forgot that this new law on job creation will, uh, create the precarity in in the in the urban poor's life. So, in the end, you don't know what will happen. Whether this kind of political identity, the nationalism, the sentiments towards religion or ethnicity will be played in the future. So, I think if I can make uh, understand, if I can understand what happens and how we can move forward is to to still be to be to be still resilient the the characters that as you mentioned earlier malik the, the 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 ability to make jokes the ability to 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 laugh about our <laughs> our life but at the same time having in mind about the dream the uh, believing that maybe someday maybe one day we will be able to live a better life in jakarta or in the city
0: Thank, thank you, Dion. I mean, again, again the, the the power of the of the maybe, uh, Mariana, for some fi- final reflections. I mean, Rio has, you know, usually stereotypically been associated as a kind of city that embodies a certain sense of joyousness, um, and 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 certainly the late Marielle Franco and her municipal politics. There was a there was a sense of of, of, of joyousness. Um, even, even amidst the the, the struggles, um, and then recently Rio has been subjected to a kind of very masculinous melancholy, a kind of very a heaviness. That, I mean, given given these, is is there a way forward within sort of municipal politics that embodies a kind of joyous sense of rediscovering a kind of um, Viable collectivity?
1: Thank you, Malik, for the question. I'm actually very happy to talk about Marielle and the Marielle Franco experiment to a non Brazilian audience. Marielle Franco was a bisexual Black woman of favela origin, elected to the City Council of Rio de Janeiro in 2016 and assassinated on March 14, 2018, in downtown Rio. The car she was riding in the back seat was ambushed by another vehicle and 14 shots were fired in her direction. Four of them hit her face. Another three killed her driver, Anderson Gomes. Marielle was something of a spearhead of this young generation of peripheral urbanists, journalists and activists I've been talking about. She was among the first of her generation to achieve certain goals and to occupy certain spaces and places. But more than just being the first, she was something of an avant garde of this collective push for human rights and for the reduction of inequalities. She slipped through the cracks of the patriarchal, racist society she wanted to change and held the door open, clearing the path for those that came alongside and after her. Instead of a mandato, the Portuguese term for being in office, Marielle instituted a mandata in the feminine. Her staff included the first transgender person to work as aide to council, and she brought many black women into spaces, formerly denied them. In her very short term, Marielle submitted 16 projects to the city council. Her projects attempted to build a better city for women, including the creation of daycare centers for the children of women who work or study during a night shift. A proposal to celebrate the International Day of the Black Woman, campaigns for lesbian visibility, and measures to help decrease sexual harassment. Like her closest friends wrote on March 18, 2018, in killing her, they buried a seed. Ubuntu in Zulu, I am because we are, was her model from early on in her campaign for the city council. And it seems to have really come true. Renata Souza, Monica Francisco, and Dani Monteiro were Marielle's former aides, and they were elected to the state legislature in October 2018 with a shared platform of following Marielle's footsteps and continuing her work. On November 15th this year, more Black women were elected to the city council. There have never been so many Black people of favela origin working in the state legislature. So really, her death made her larger than life. And I really hope that it will inspire future generations to build more equal cities and that they, these women will help us overcome what you call this masculinist, masculinist melancholy, melancholy, that I really love that term, actually, Malik. I'm going to use it from now on. So I really hope that beginning next year, we're, it's going to be the beginning of a new Um, era in the city legislature. One that's more inspired by Marielle than by the centuries of racism in this deeply patriarchal and unequal society.
0: Thank you, Mariana, for this this, uh, hope-laden prediction and prospects. Thank you. Um, Moment, a a quick reflection. You You talk about fragments any signs of uh, fragments, uh, cracks in the edifice of the Egyptian regime When, it, as, uh, in light of, of, of the governance of Cairo? <laughs> I, I wish we had some hope
4: in, in the legislator practice like uh, Mariana. Um, so I would respond to that. Thank you, Malik. I mean, um, I would respond to that by rethinking if if we were to write today Weapons of the Week by James Scott, I think we would use the tool of sarcasm like Diana was pointing out to. And the sarcasm of the fragments of, of impossibilities or unbelievable things happening and uh, by regimes of power, the, the sarcasm of... Uh, of Trump banning TikTok, of uh, many things happening that are a little bit more than just weird, but it tells you that the, the weapons of the weak, that even the regimes of power trying to dispossess is, is the moments of sarcasm, the ability to laugh, to laugh at and through the actions of the regimes and and we are witnessing an incredible new waves of future medias and social and, and repurposing of social media through the new visualizations and and it's it's kind of like even though it's 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 about laughing but there are there is there is there's is an intent for politics of visualization and it's 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 bringing together what Steve was pointing out to to the heterogeneous energy that comes through that come through unknown and unexpected possibilities, and and this is where also it's a matter of repurposing and reproducing and reshuffling things around, and I I think it's this is this is where the the struggle becomes or where like taking over these moments and trying to maintain this level of sarcasm until there is hope at a grander level. Yeah.
0: Thank you, thank you, Momen. Uh, Steve, any, any final reflections about political futures
5: in Nairobi? Yes, on this last issue, and thank you very much for asking. On this last issue, I want to speak more, of, more, more of, uh, from my position as an activist than um, a scholar. I want to suggest that one of the most frustrating things that I've experienced about Nairobi is how the money market and the non-governmental organizations, which are largely um, part and parcel of the state logic, have been able to consistently capture and uh, to some extent uh, evaporate the um, organic energies that are generated by those in the margins and they purport that they want to guide that energy, but in that guiding it, they make it apolitical, uh, and basically, it's like um, removing dialectics from the works of Marx. And uh, that's 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 been really my disappointment in the last in the last decade. And I've seen that uh, done by national organisations. I've seen that done by regional collectivities. I've seen that done by the um, the UN. Forums and instruments. So the 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 the, the future politics of Nairobi in terms of um, uh, moving beyond that capture are at three levels. One, I think that um, the engineers, the architects, the the land economists, and those in built environment now know that the dysfunctionality of Nairobi is um, an indictment to the rationality of their disciplines. So the, the first politics is the politics of changing disciplinary reasoning within those built environment um, spaces. Second one is that um, I see a possibility of another generation of uh, urban urbanist and urban movement, largely youth. They call themselves hustlers. They're in the and they use language that is largely anti-state. They don't want to work with non governmental organizations, which I think is a very good thing, they should not. And I think left um, to what they're doing and they're producing music, they're producing artwork, they're producing um, various dressing styles and language that is disruptive and may uh, lead us into rethinking the app. And finally, I'm very worried at the moment about the return of colonial logic in governance of Nairobi. Today, Nairobi is being managed by a military general who was brought in by the president as an, as an affirmative action to, to take back Nairobi to its original sense. And what is the original sense? The original sense is equal to the original scene, and the original scene is a colonial blueprint. So I'm hoping that this new generation of um, the hustler movement, as they call themselves, that uh, subverts uh, the states, and this new generation of um, built environment experts that move beyond the um, disciplinary mode of reasoning that has created this nationality, are going to perhaps open towards some new modes of relating and seeing Nairobi. Thank you.
0: Thank you, thank you, Steve, for this also this um, uh, perhaps hope, hopeful prospect of being able to continue continuously produce new modes of of knowing in in in, in counter to the dictates of rationality by those, particularly youth, that continue to embody the notion of wheeling and dealing and going around and and making and making things happen um, thank you all uh, for your really incisive and powerful reflections um, it's really been um, in, in heartening to see that uh, despite the very clear-eyed sense of what's taking place that there's always the ability to see beyond the present or see within the present those things that might happen uh, and might already be happening um, in one way or another. So thank you very much uh, and all the best to everyone. Yes, and thank you everyone uh,
5: for taking part. Thank you, Abdul Malik, for your uh... Moderation, wonderful uh, summary there uh, from our side. Uh, That was a very eloquent, rich comments, um, lots of
3: politically interesting insights, and often quite poetic as well. And uh, uh, was very engaging and uh, um, uh, very intriguing.
5: Thank you very much. Thanks to you for listening.
2: For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.polychi.io
3: Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.